Well, will you turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4? If you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 1119. 1119. Romans chapter 4, and I'm going to be preaching on verses 18 through 25, but I want to begin our reading in verse 16 today. Would you stand with me as a sign of reverence for the reading of God's inspired and errant and infallible word? Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. This is the word of God. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to, to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Thus ends the reading of God's word. All flesh is like grass, and all of its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and its flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. Are you familiar with this expression, hoping against hope? It's one of those things that someone might say when they're hopeful for something, that they actually have very little reason to believe may come about. So for example, if you've lost your wallet full of cash, you might say, I'm hoping against hope that someone will find it and return it. Or if, like me, you have the unfortunate experience of being a fan of the Angels baseball team, you might say, I'm hoping against hope that the Angels will make the playoffs this year. It's one of those expressions that gets used frequently enough that we generally have a sense of what it means. It means that we hope for something that by all accounts seems very unlikely to actually occur. But did you realize that that expression, hoping against hope, is actually a biblical expression? That it is a shortened form of something that we find here in Romans 4. Our common English expression is derived from this biblical text in front of us today. You'll find it stated slightly differently here in verse 18, where it says of Abraham that in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. 
And so as we consider this passage together, I want us to consider what are the real complications to Abraham's faith, uh, such that it was said of Abraham that he was hoping against hope. Uh, And I also want to see the reasons for the confidence that Abraham had to hope against hope. And then finally, I want us to see the correspondence of Abraham's faith with our own so that we, like him, have good reason to hope against hope. Uh, And so that will be our structure today. We'll first look at the complications of faith in verses 18 through 19. Secondly, we'll look at the confidence of faith in verses 20 through 22. And then finally, we'll look at the correspondence of our faith in verses 23 through 25. But before we dive right into that first point about the complications that attended Abraham's faith, I think it's important to just take a a moment once again and to, to remind ourselves of why it is that Paul is talking about any of this in the first place. Paul spent the first three chapters of this letter to the Romans basically demonstrating and proving that all mankind had broken God's law and that they stood guilty and condemned before him. He develops that at length until he gets to chapter 3 and he says there's none righteous, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. They've all gone astray. All have sinned, and they have fallen short of the glory of God. And because of this, because all are guilty before God, no one can be justified. No one can be accounted righteous in God's sight by trying to keep the law. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight because they're all lawbreakers. So the first three chapters, Paul spent laying out the bad news. But Paul was not commissioned by God to go and preach bad news to people. Paul was commissioned by God to go and to preach good news. And as chapter 3 turns there at verses 19 and following, Paul gets into the good news that now a righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. And it is a righteousness of God which is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's the good news. The good news is that there is a way for you to be righteous before God. And it's not by trying harder. It's not by working more diligently to fulfill the law perfectly, which we can never do. It is an alternative way. It is by trusting in Christ through faith. It is by resting in what Christ has done and not what we have done. And you might remember then that Paul has been using Abraham as an example of what it means to be justified by faith. And so he appeals to the Old Testament and to where it says that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And then the last thing he said, which we looked at this last week, was he said that's why it must depend on faith, that, it may, uh, that the promise may rest on grace, and that it may be guaranteed to all of his offspring. What a wonderful thing to know, 
that the God who cannot lie has made a promise and that on top of that promise, he has guaranteed it with an oath and he gives it to all who believe. It's a glorious promise and it's easy enough to understand. I just need to believe. But I trust you know that the inner life of faith and just believing is sometimes much more difficult than it appears. In spite of God's guarantee, it's sometimes difficult for us to believe that what God has promised is actually true, will actually come about. Our faith is complicated by all kinds of things. It's complicated by our own sins, by our flesh, by the things we see around us. And it was complicated for Abraham too. And the Bible talks very clearly about these complications. We, we see them in verses 18 through 19. We read that in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. For he'd been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Now, to understand this, we have to see how it fits into Paul's argument. And we need to remember what it was that was being promised to Abraham. What was it that Abraham was believing God for? When it says that it was accounted to him as righteousness for believing, what was it that he was believing God for? Well, he was believing God for children. God had promised him that he would become the father of many nations, that his offspring would be as numerous as the stars of the heavens, that they would be like the sand of the seashore. Children, just think about how much sand is on the seashore. If you took a bucket and you filled it up with sand, how much sand grains would be in that bucket, let alone on the whole of the seashore? How many stars fill the night sky? The stars you see, you can't count them. And the stars you cannot see. And God used those beautiful pictures as a way of telling Abraham that his descendants were going to be a multitude. He even changed his name from Abram to Abraham, the father of a multitude. He was believing God for children. There was just one problem. He had no children. He was 75 years old when God first made that promise. He was 100 years old before it would ever come about. Now, if you've ever struggled with infertility, or if you've had those close to you who have, you know the difficult struggle. You know the complications that it is for your faith. When we were a young married couple, we had a group of friends that we vacationed with every year. And while all of us couples were having children, seemingly one after another, one of these couples were not. Our friends, many of you know them, Eric and Heather, 
rejoiced with us as one by one we announced that we are having a baby. And while they rejoiced with us in their hearts, they were breaking. They were grieving at their inability to conceive. And it didn't get easier with each passing year. It got harder and harder and harder. Abraham and Sarah have been waiting 25 years. By God's grace, God would give Eric and Heather children through adoption, Kira and Carl, Liam and Liara. But you know, unlike Abraham and Sarah, they had no promise from God. They had a desire in their hearts. And surely Abraham and Sarah had a desire in their hearts, but they also had, on top of that, a deliberate promise that God was going to give them children. And yet now it's been 25 years, and Abram is nearly 100 years old, and Sarah's womb is barren. And yet the Bible says, in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. And he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Now maybe you're beginning to feel the weight of that expression that he was hoping against hope. Because by every earthly circumstance, there was no way that this couple should conceive. There was no way that they should have children. And yet he continued to believe God for it. He did not weaken in faith and hope. He believed against hope. What is hope? Hope is a beautiful word. It's a Pauline word. In fact, this word hope is used 36 times in this letter to the Romans, more than anywhere else in the Bible. Hope is is an expectation, isn't it? It's a desire for something. Later in this book, Paul is going to speak about the way that we hope for the resurrection, our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And he says, in this hope, we were saved. We were saved with a view to resurrection, that one day God is going to destroy this last enemy, death, and he is going to raise us in glorious hope. It's in this hope that we were saved. But he says, hope that is seen is not hope. If you see it, right, that's not hope. Who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Hope is like a longing that God puts in our hearts with the expectation of the fulfillment of his promises. Martin Lloyd-Jones refers to hope, and I I love this. He says, hope is faith standing on its tiptoes. It's faith standing on its tiptoes. It's faith that is sort of craning to see what is just out of sight, just beyond my ability to actually see it. I'm standing on my tiptoes, hoping against all hopes. In hope, Abraham believed. Now, you might object and say, well, what about that whole incident with Hagar? Right? What about when 
Abraham asks God that his descendants might be named through Ishmael, through the son of the bondwoman. Isn't that an example of weak faith? In, in one sense, yes. In the sense that he was sort of trying to help God along with the process and attempting to bring about the promise according to the flesh. But in another sense, the very fact that that whole incident even occurs only serves to show that Abraham was unwavering in his belief that God was going to give him children. That's what the attempt was. It was an attempt to gain an heir. It was an attempt to gain children. And so he was mistaken completely, 100%, in the way in which God was going to do it. He was mistaken about his part in it. But God was going to do it. And he was going to do it in the most remarkable way. And so there were real obstacles to Abraham's faith. But, but Abraham, in spite of these complications, also had a confidence a confidence of faith. And so I want you to see that in verses 20 through 22. It says there that no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Now that is a remarkable statement, that in spite of those very real complications... To the promise, he grew strong in faith. He grew strong in faith and gave glory to God. How did he do that? How did he grow strong in faith? Don't you want to know that the secret that Abraham had? How did he do it? Well, let me first tell you how he didn't do it. He didn't do it by ignoring reality. He didn't pretend like there were no obstacles. He looked square in the face of the obstacles. He considered his own body, which was as good as dead. He considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. He didn't just stick his head in the sand and deny reality. Sometimes people talk about faith like this, like faith is just something irrational, that the only way that you could actually grow strong in faith is if you just stuck your head in the sand and denied what was obviously true. That's not what Abraham did. He didn't deny reality. He considered his body. He considered the barrenness of his wife. He considered his circumstances. And yet, in spite of that, instead, in spite of the fact that he's looking his circumstances square in the face, he believed. How? How did he grow strong in faith in spite of these complications? He grew strong in faith by considering a greater reality. By considering the reality of Almighty God. The scripture says, what? He was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. We have a big God. Sometimes we look at our problems and we think they're so insurmountable. But we serve a big God. 
Abraham looked at these complicated realities. He looked them square in the face, and then he closed his eyes to them, and he opened the eyes of his faith, and he considered the power and the promise of God. The reality of God's powerful ability dwarfed the reality of his circumstances. It dwarfed the weakness of his body and Sarah's body. What enabled Abraham to grow strong in faith was that the God that he worships is the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Look back at verse 17. I touched on this last week, but it's important for this week. Verse 17 says, As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. What were Abraham and Sarah's problems? Their bodies were as good as dead, and the promised son did not exist. Who is God? He is the one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. This is the God that they worship, the living and true God of heaven and earth, the God who created all things out of nothing. Simply by the word of his power, he spoke and light came out of darkness. God separated the day from the night. He filled the universe with the sun, moon, and stars, the galaxies, galaxies upon galaxies. This is the God who divided the waters above from the waters below and filled them with every sort of flying creature and swimming creature who made land and man. Jeremiah prays in Jeremiah 32 saying, Ah, Lord God, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power and by thy outstretched arm, nothing is too difficult for thee. What is too difficult for the God who can call things out of nothing? Not things out of something. Things out of nothing. The reason Abraham grew strong in faith was because his faith rested in the almighty power of God. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. And by the way, church, this is a very good reason for you to study theology. Theology just means the study of God. And the study of God is not just for pastors or seminary students or academics or online forum geeks. It's for the church. It's for everyone. The reason that you should study God is so that you can know God. So that you can grow strong in your faith. Now I've said many times, and I'm saying it again now, that it's not the strength of your faith that saves you. Right? It's not whether we have strong faith or weak faith. Whatever faith we have rests in the almighty power of God. It's not the strength of our faith that saves us. But don't you want stronger faith? I do. I want to always be growing in my faith. I want to know God more and better. I want to be like Abraham, of whom it was said he, he never wavered in unbelief. 
in spite of his circumstances, in spite of the fact that it seemed impossible, he believed in the promise of God. We should all desire to grow strong in our faith. And if you are going to grow stronger in your faith, I can promise you it will only be in direct proportion to your growing in the knowledge of God. The God who gives life to the dead, who calls into existence things that do not exist. And that brings us to our final point. We've considered the complications of faith and the confidence of faith. Finally, let's consider the correspondence of faith. Verses 23, we read, But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. My friend Jeremiah Montgomery, I listened to a sermon he preached on this text, and he said, Paul is not just giving a history lesson here. This is not just a history lesson. He wants us to see that there is a correspondence between the faith of Abraham and the faith of his spiritual offspring, those who share the faith of Abraham. And so he he tells us that when God had these words recorded in the Holy Scriptures, that it was counted to him as righteousness, that was not just for Abraham. In fact, it couldn't be just for Abraham. Those words were recorded long after Abraham. It was for his descendants. It was for those who would share the faith of Abraham. It was for these Roman Christians to whom Paul is now writing almost 2,000 years ago. And it is for you, Gainesvillian Christians, now 2,000 years later. This account of Abraham's faith was written for you so that whoever reads it might understand that God justifies sinners not on the basis of their works, but on the basis of their faith in the promised son. Isaac was a picture, and he was a shadow of a greater promised son, the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the most amazing pictures of this in Abraham's life is when God tells him to sacrifice his son. God has finally given him a son. After all these years of waiting, 25 years of waiting, hoping and trusting in God, and then God says, now sacrifice your son to me. I'm taking him. And Abraham climbs that mountain. How his heart must have been grieving as he climbed Mount Moriah. He finally has the promised son. And now the Lord says, I need your full loyalty. And Abraham goes and how his heart must have broke as Isaac said, Dad, here's the wood and here's the torch, but where is the sacrifice? And he gets up there and just as he is about to obey the Lord, the Lord stays his hand. The angel of the Lord speaks to him and and there is a ram caught in the thicket. And he says, now that I see that you have believed and followed me, don't sacrifice your son. Sacrifice this ram. And the author of Hebrews picks up on that. And the way he says it, he says that Abraham received his son off of the altar as resurrection. 
But because he believed, he had already committed to his death, and God gave him back to him. As a picture of the resurrection of Christ, Jesus said that Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Abraham was not just trusting in that promised son. He was trusting in God who gave the son, and he was trusting in the seed who would come. The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, and he does not say offsprings as of many, but offspring to your seed. The promises were made to Abraham and to Christ. Now Paul continues here. He says that it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You see the continuity? The same God who brought life out of the dead bodies of Abraham and Sarah is the same God who brings life out of the dead body of Jesus. That is the God in whom we believe. The God who brings life out of death in our own hearts. Spiritual life from spiritual death. Who calls light out of darkness. Paul says it's that same powerful word that called light out of darkness in the beginning that now calls light out of darkness in our hearts to give us the knowledge of Christ. And he raised Jesus from the dead. He's delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And here, at the end of this passage, Paul, in just one sentence, sums up the whole gospel so beautifully that Jesus, the promised Son of God, the seed for which Abraham longed, was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now, you may not know it, but this word, delivered up, is a word we talked about at length when we were in the Gospel of Matthew. This word, uh, paradotha, which is here translated delivered up, but there, in the Gospels, it's translated as handed over. Uh, in the Gospels, everyone is handing over Jesus, right? Judas hands him over to the high priests, and the high priests hand him over to Pilate, and Pilate hands him over to the soldiers, and the soldiers hand him over to death. And if that term has a foreboding ring about it, that is for good reason. Because throughout the Bible, this is a term that God uses when he delivers over his people to judgment for sin. That's the way it's used in the Septuagint. It's the term that Paul uses when he speaks of God handing over or delivering people over to a debased mind because of the hardness of their hearts. We saw that earlier in Romans. Paul uses it to speak of delivering over false teachers to Satan so that they might learn not to blaspheme. Are you getting the picture? You don't want to be handed over. That's the point. You don't want to be delivered over. Bruner says in the Bible... A delivering over by God is the single most appalling thing that can happen to a human being. And here Paul says that that single most appalling thing that can happen to a human being happened to Jesus for your trespasses. He was handed over to death. He was delivered over to the wrath and curse of God. Why? 
Because he deserved it? Because you deserved it. Because I deserved it. Because the wages of sin is death. That is to say, that is what every sin deserves. It deserves the wrath and curse of God. But that is only half of the equation, isn't it? That he was delivered up for our trespasses. It's often the half of the equation that we link with the gospel. When we ask people, what is the gospel? Jesus died for my sins. And so he did. He was delivered up for our trespasses. But that's not where Paul ends. He not only says that he was delivered up for our trespasses, he says he was raised for our justification. If the gospel is only that Jesus died for our sins, if it is only his death without his resurrection, what good news is that? How is that good news? If the wages of sin is death, let's work it out here. If the wages of sin is death, and Jesus remains dead, buried in the ground, how does that help you? All it says is that the wages of sin haven't been paid. The wages of sin are not yet satisfied. Because the wages of sin is death. But you see the very moment that Jesus comes to life. The very moment that the God who raises the dead, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist, the very moment that by his almighty power he raises Jesus from the dead, it says to the whole world, the wages of sin are paid. It's done. That there's nothing more that stands against my son Joel. There's nothing more that stands against my daughter Ashley. The wages of sin, all of them, are paid. And that is why Paul says that he was delivered up for our trespasses, but raised for our justification. Because only once those wages have been paid can God now say, this one is righteous in my sight. If that seems like a brilliant insight to you, it's not mine. It's from Gerhardus Voss. He has an excellent sermon just on that verse. But it is an excellent insight. And, and Voss says it's something like this, that the moment Jesus is raised from the dead and your sins are left buried in the ground, never to rise up against you at the day of judgment. How beautiful is that? That all of your trespasses, all of your sins, everything that was counted against you is no longer counted against you. And so that you can be, have not only your sins forgiven, but you can have the very righteousness of Jesus Christ counted to you who believe. The resurrection is proof of this. That, that God has accepted the sacrifice of Christ and that God's people are justified 
by grace and through faith. Now, here's the rubber hits the road. Because I know that you struggle still to believe that. I know that you struggle still to believe it. Because I struggle still to believe it. I look at my sins. And I hear the accusations of Satan. And I hear my own conscience. And my conscience isn't lying. It's true, there is much sin. And the devil sees my sins, just like he saw Joshua the high priest, and he accused him, dressed in his filthy rags. And he stood there accusing him before the throne of God. He is the accuser of the brethren. And I look at these things and I think, how is it possible that God can justify me? It seems like I'm hoping against hope. I am. And you are. Because that's what faith does. Faith hopes against hope. In hope, faith believes against hope in the God who gives life to the dead and who calls into existence the things that do not exist. I could not say this possibly better than the way Calvin says it in his commentary. Listen to this. He says, All things around us stand in opposition to the promises of God. He promises immortality. We are surrounded with mortality and corruption. He declares that he counts us just. We are covered with sins. He testifies that he's propitious and that he is kind to us while outward judgments threaten his wrath. What then is to be done? We must, with closed eyes, pass by ourselves and all things connected with us, that nothing may hinder or prevent us from believing that God is true. You hear what he's saying? When we look around the world, just like Abraham looked at his circumstances, it appears that everything is actually in opposition to the promises of God. He promises immortality, and yet my body is wasting away day by day. I'm getting older. It's painful. He promises that I am justified in his sight, and and so often all I can see is my own sinfulness staring back at me. He testifies that he's kind. But I so often feel that he is a judge. What can we do? We close our eyes and we rest in God's promise. We must own these realities. We don't ignore them as true. These outward difficulties of our lives, we see them for what they are but we close our eyes to them and open the eyes of our faith to that far surpassing reality of who God is, of his promise and of his power to us, that he is still the God who gives life to the dead, the God who gave life to the bodies of Abraham and Sarah, the God who gave life to the body of Jesus Christ, and the God who will one day give life to these mortal bodies, that even should we die, 
we will be raised up in glory. It's in this hope that we've been saved. Hope that is seen is not hope. Who hopes for what he sees? But we wait for it with patience. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for your word and for your promise and for your power. And we would, like Abraham, stand on our tiptoes, longing to see the fulfillment of all these things. Oh, God, how we long to be free from our sins. How we long to love you as we ought, as we sang earlier in that hymn. Would we bear up with the kinds of things that you bear up with, with us. Only in glory will we truly worship you well and right. Only then will we love you as we ought. But we long for that day, Lord. And even though now we do not see it, we do not live by sight. We live by faith. And so, Lord, help us then, even as we look at the things that would be obstacles and complications to your promise, Lord, help us to look in faith to you, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. Lord, work this kind of faith into our hearts that we might walk before you like Abraham did all the days of his life with unwavering faith. Help us to know you better so that we might grow strong in our faith. For we ask it all in Jesus' name and to his glory. Amen.